This is Combo Shenanigans, episode 260, A Conversation with Chris Claremont. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is Adam Chapman, your host, and this is episode 260. It's our conversation with Chris Claremont. So this afternoon, I got the uh, great opportunity to sit down with Chris and talk a little bit about his career, his uh, his runs on X-Men, Fantastic Four, etc. Um, before we get into the episode, though, I want to thank some people from the MarvelMasterworks.com message boards. Um, some uh, great um, posters there had submitted some ideas for questions. Um, I didn't have a chance to actually uh, quote them by name on the actual episode, but I do want to thank them uh, in advance. Um, So they include, uh, let's see, uh, DJ Way, Dr. Doombot, um, let's see, another one by DJ Way, uh, Badger1701, um, Gary Russell, sorry, actually Gary Russell, we didn't get a chance to get to that particular question, unfortunately. Um, There were some questions that, from actually someone I don't know the name of, um, AJ Reese, uh, friend and listener of the show had uh, some a friend of theirs uh, had some questions that they wanted submitted so those got included as well um, there's also questions here from K Banya uh, Phonics Monkey Volume 2 um, as well as Video Farmer and then some questions of my own just sprinkled in so um, if you had submitted a question thank you very much for doing so and uh, you'll be able to listen to it on the episode um, a little bit of housekeeping this episode is going up a little bit later than expected um, although originally it wasn't going to have the Chris Claremont interview, but uh, thankfully uh, we were able to get it all ready to go, and so that'll be uh, in today's episode. So our next episode, 262, uh, will either be what was going to be this episode, or it will be um, the Fabian Nesiza. I apologize, I still don't know how to pronounce that name, but soon I will, because I'm sitting down to talk with him in a, few, in a couple of days. Uh, so that'll be an upcoming episode, either 262 or 264. So thanks again for uh, joining us for Comic Shenanigans. If you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also post in our HC Realms thread as well. So thanks again for joining us, and uh, let's get right into the, uh, to the episode. So, Chris, thank you for uh, joining Comic Shenanigans. Um, so, we very much appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, come on the show. No, my pleasure. Um, so, um, I, I'm sure you've you've a lot of these types of questions. I'm sure you've done many, many times over the years. But I uh, appreciate your indulgence anyway. Um, if you could, maybe we could go back to kind of the beginning. How did you first get involved in comics? Oh, I suppose by accident. When I was at university, uh, Bard College had a policy in those days of closing down from January 1st to March 1st for what we call what was called field period. Oh, and students were expected to go out and get a an internship. Or, or job in a field related to their major subject to their majors at the time my dual major was political theory and acting oh really and in January of 1969 there really wasn't much available for a political theorist from college like Bard in the uh, in the early days of the Nixon administration um, 
and there was even less going on in New York as far as theater was concerned. So uh, my parents were friends with Al Jaffe of Mad Magazine, and I thought, well, that'd be cool. I could go work for Mad for two months and learn about publishing as I had uh, was interested in writing as well and um, come back with some cool stories to tell. And Al basically went to my parents and said, do you have any idea what we do there? (laughs) There's no way in hell that I'm going to let your son get anywhere near that office. You'll never speak to me again. On the other hand, if he wants a job in publishing, uh, I can talk to a friend of mine, Stan Lee, and... uh, Maybe he'd like to do something at Marvel. And I said, sure, sounds cool. So Stan called me up and uh, actually opened the conversation by saying, hello there, true believer. (laughs) I said, okay. And he said, well, you want to work for us? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we can't pay very much. And I said, well, it's for college credit we're not supposed to ask for payment. (laughs) There was like a microsecond pause and he came back with, you're hired. (laughs) Marvel was very good at acquiring people who'd work for free. (laughs) And eventually they did pay for my train fare. Oh, really? Since I was commuting in from Long Island at the time. So I started working at Marvel. Now, had you had you read a lot of comics previous to then, growing up? Uh, kind of, maybe, sort of. Um, I had my grandmother had would send me an ongoing subscription to a British weekly magazine called Eagle, which was the creme de la creme hmm. of uh, weekly comics. Well young adult adventure magazines involving uh, graphic stories, text stories, articles, the works. Um, Eagle was most known for Dan Dare's Sky Pilot of the Spaceways. Okay. Um, And it was brilliant. It had some of the best artists in in Britain working on the best graphic artists and uh, it was just wonderful Uh, aside from that I kind of read comics when I went to the barber shop Mm -hmm. Uh, in high school I got re-hooked I get well hooked I guess on Marvel when I picked up a copy of uh, Fantastic Four 48, I think. Okay. The Coming of Galactus. That's one hell of a first issue. It was not bad. Well, it was actually the, the, the Watcher issue, then the Silver Surfer, then Galactus. Yeah. And it was Stan and Jack Kirby at the peak of their talent, career, whatever, reputation, certainly. And uh, I was hooked. And... FF led me to Thor. 
again by Stan and Jack. Thor led me to Avengers by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. And I just kept going because this stuff was ridiculously cool. Um, and that was pretty much that. You know, I, I'd had comics I'd collected as a kid, but my father decided to throw them away when I went off to uh, college because young young men were not supposed to read comics. We were supposed to read books. <laughs> Sadly, if I'd had the comics I had, if I had now the comics that I had then, um, I could pay for my kids' college. <laughs> the most notable being an issue of, I think, action. Might have been adventure. But where... Uh, Superman reveals his secret identity to uh, John Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Published the first week of November 1963. Yeah, that'd be worth something. It, DC pulled every issue they could get their hands on and pulped them after the assassination. Mm-hmm. But he threw it, my father threw it out. Ugh! <laughs> it's a real shame. So I spent two months working for Marvel as a gopher. Um, what was the environment like? I mean, a lot of people want to hear about, you know, the kind of the ins and outs of what that, that place was really like, right? Well, it was a lot less structured, a lot less corporate than it is now. Mm-hmm. Certainly the offices were much, much smaller. I mean, let's see, you have Stan's office, there was Stan's office, which had the only functioning door. <laughs> you had the sort of editorial office, which was Roy Thomas, and uh, the business manager, um, and Stan's secretary, who was then Roy's wife. Then you had John Verporten's office. He was the the office manager. And then you had the art office, which in those days was John Romita Sr., Herb Trimpey, Marie Severin, and Frank Giacoya. What an office. It was fun. For sure. Then you had... Uh, Murray Boltonoff and the um, the tech office, which is where everything was photostatted before we sent it out. Uh, then there was sort of like a little cubicle for me and the secretary. And uh, then there was a reception area, which was most notable because it had a couch and that was it. Wow. I think the whole office was like 15 people. Unbelievable. It was, actually. It was a lot of fun. It, it was much less formal, much, much less structured, much more, in its own way, anarchic okay. than it's grown in the decades since. 
but almost almost sounds like the Wild West, you know, kind of not a lot of law. Oh, it wasn't that there wasn't a lot of law. It was just that you had what you had were a collection of madcap geniuses hanging out together and the the train hadn't the train line to the east hadn't opened up yet so there weren't any continuous clutch of immigrants <laughs> cascading in mm-hmm. that was about four years down the road now after you did the internship what kind of came next I went back to school, got my degree, kept, for the fun of it, submitting concept ideas, uh, which Roy, as editor-in-chief, began to buy. Um, The first one was uh, a Hulk story where Jarella comes to Earth, which turned out to be was my first sale, my first plot, Archie Goodwin's first script over my plot. Oh, wow. uh, With Herb Trimpey and John Severin at the peak of their talent. It was, it absolutely sodding brilliant. (laughs) my mind. Um, An Avengers story where the Sentinels came back from the Sun, which I kind of was sort of my fault since I suggested to Roy that was where we should get rid of them in the first place when he and Neil were doing uh, the, the Sentinel arc in X-Men. That was the other thing that happened that, that, that spring was while I was, while I was there as Gopher, the first issues of Neil's and Roy's arc on Uncanny started rolling in and it was just brilliant I mean Neil Adams holy at his peak Roy mm-hmm. Thomas at his peak the X-Men at their peak till later till later yeah um, and Roy was trying to figure out how do we get rid of the Sentinels and I just thought well if, if you really want to get rid of mutants the source of mutation is believed to be solar radiation. So logically, send them down to the sun. And that should take care of them. (laughs) And Roy thought, oh, that'll work. So why'd you bring them back in Avengers? Because no good villain dies forever. True. Um, Yeah... I'm on the, I'm being interviewed. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Um, and then, you know, I came, I came up, well, we sent them down there. Let's bring them back. And they're really pissed. So I did. Well, I gave Roy the idea. He turned it into the first part of an Avengers arc and was kind enough to list me on the uh, credits page as from an idea by Chris Claremont. 
Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And that got me going. And then after I graduated and come to New York and was trying to build a career as an actor, I would just start submitting story concepts and article pitches to Marvel, and foolishly, they started buying them. <laughs> when when was the I guess the first script? Because you mentioned I got and again some of the original kind of plots that you were submitting. What was the first scripted issue you did? Oh, of the extremely large amount that you've done of writing. <laughs> well, I guess the first I've sold some short horror stories starting in I guess seventy three, and uh, did some fill-in script over other people's plots you know uh, starting I think with uh, Daredevil okay again in 73 um, that was it so can you I, describe I, the process I, of starting I, to write the X-Men comic which I'm sure you've described many times but for our well, listeners. I got in a, I started working at Marvel in the office. Um, originally, I was hired part time for two and a half days a week, but all the work would show up the two and a half days I wasn't there. <laughs> no matter which two and a half days it was, it was really weird. And finally, I got to the point. I mean, my idea was I'd earn. I work for Marvel for a few months, earn up a chunk of money, go off and do summer stock because my intent was to make a career in acting. And uh, that would be that. And then Marvel decided they couldn't they couldn't find a way to make two and a half days a week work. So given a choice between firing me or hiring me to try and earn back the the money they'd already invested they they gave they made me full time <laughs> for all of like $210 a week oh wow yeah it was very high quality in those days <laughs> and uh, ultimately I became assistant associate editor of of the color line working for Len Wein who was editor in chief. So my office was, my desk was outside his office and the last thing Roy did as editor in chief before he left and the job went to Len was to start I guess pre-production work on X-Men they wanted to reboot it. They decided they wanted to try and reboot it with an international cast. Um, Stan wanted to see if we could make some sort of inroads into an over, overseas market. Um, Len and Dave Cockrum were sitting around talking, and Dave would, was flashing characters from his sketchbook, Um which is how uh, Storm came to be in Nightcrawler. Mm -hmm. And as they were spitballing and constructing the first giant size number one, 
I'm sitting outside the office listening and being a totally clueless, tactless twit. (laughs) I wandered in and started tossing ideas. So in the case of giant size number one, what I, my contribution was how to get rid of Krakoa. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. You know, just... You seem to be good at figuring out what to do with the villain. Yeah, just neutralize the gravimetric lines of force that anchor the island to the Earth, the planet. Earth's revolving at a thousand miles an hour, and God knows how fast we're orbiting around the sun. Uh, in a matter of a minute or two, the island is out of the atmosphere and being left behind. Hmm. And that's that's how we went. And then Len was working on issue two because it was a quarterly, not you know, and two things happened. He decided he'd had enough of being editor in chief and it was time for him to go. And as his exit, I guess, agreement, he he took the four top titles in the line, uh, Spider-Man, Hulk, Avengers, I think, and I don't know, something else. And, um, but he, the, he didn't have enough room on his schedule to do, to fit X-Men, especially since the, the decision had been made to make it a bi-monthly mm-hmm. because quarterly was just not, not a practical or profitable way to publish a title. They figured they'd make it a bi-monthly and that would be that. So he left with issue two or what became X-Men 94. Uh, the first 94 is basically his plot. 95 is me trying to get, rewrite his, the end of his plot to make it part of a continuing series as opposed to self-contained quarterlies. Interesting. And after that, Dave and I were, as they say, off and running. What, uh, what would you say, like, how was your writing style in terms of collaborating, like, at the beginning with Dave Cockrum, as opposed to how it would evolve over time? Was it very much Marvel method, or how did... Oh, it's always, when you're working with someone like Dave Cockrum or John Byrne, uh, Stan's style, the Marvel style, is the way to go. I mean, Stan did it originally because when you're working with Jack Kirby and John Buscema and Steve Ditko. Why bother to? Why waste their time by doing a full script? I mean, these these guys are the best natural-born storytellers in the business. You know, for any writer to try and dictate the the structure of a of a page to them is is Coles to Newcastle. So, in a, add to that the fact that Stan was editor in chief, and 
primary writer of most of the line, he didn't have time to do all this stuff. So it was far easier to sit down and sketch out an idea with Jack and let Jack come up with the details. In the case of working with Dave, you have a natural-born storyteller who loves to create new concepts and new characters and new situations uh, every chance he gets. Uh, so you, it was just a matter of going out to lunch, figuring what do we want to do, how do we want to do it, and running for, for the fences. Have you found that, um, like, does... The, 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 sorry, the different artists you kind of have illustrating your scripts, do you find that you, uh, especially over the course of your career, started to change the way that you would script in a certain way when you had a certain writer collaborating with you, or did you always kind of have the same style? Well, I never had a certain writer collaborating with me. That that was, an, you know, anathema. Sorry, I meant an illustrator co- collaborating with you. Well, it depends. I mean, you know, the kind of stories that, Dave liked to tell were totally different in many respects from the, the ones that John liked to tell, John Byrne. The way they handled character and event were totally different. They're totally different from Walt Simonson, who's mm-hmm. totally different from Paul Smith, who's totally different from John Romita Sr. or Jr. I mean, yes, of course you adapt to every collaborator you're working with. Yeah. I mean, that's only a matter of common sense. But at the same time, you also want to find what it is that they excel at and try to give it to them, in ideally in ways that neither they nor the reader have seen before. Um, you know, in Dave's case, it was just a matter of, can you top this? Well, hey, let's... Would you like to do a double spread in space? Oh, sure. What do you got in mind? Well, let's try, oh, I don't know, a binary star? Well, what about a trinary? Oh, that would be so cool. A trinary star with two star fleets battling. (laughs) You know, I mean, you're sitting there thinking, oh, yeah? Take that, George Lucas. (laughs) Except you haven't done it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... So you have two star fleets battling it out in front of a trinary star system. Except that Dave goes and designs the starships based on bugs. <laughs> I mean, who'd ever done that before? That's hysterical. It was brilliant. And the next thing you knew, we had Lalandra. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what it was. You come up with an idea and you run with it. Hey, why don't we do, I don't know, wouldn't it be cool if we did a story set like 30 years in the future and everybody died? <laughs> and the next thing you know, and well, we just killed Phoenix. Yeah, they'll never see this one coming. And next thing you know, John and I did Days of Future Past. Absolutely. But that's, you know, you, it's, it's a fraction inspiration, a fraction of serendipity and a fraction of what would just be too darn cool. 
So going back for a second to the uh, earlier question about Marvel Method, do you still do Marvel Method? Like when writing Nightcrawler for Todd Nock, were you still doing Marvel Method? Yes. Oh, really? Okay. Uh-huh. Just, I, I wasn't sure if you had adapted it, like changed your script style at all, because it was a really good book, and just was wondering what some of the layouts were coming from, and if it was Marvel style or not. So It's... In the case of... In... With respect to Todd, it was it was Marvel style. With respect to uh, the Gen X series, and I think the um, New Mutants Forever miniseries, they were full scripts. Oh, really? Okay. It depends. I mean, it depends on who one is teamed up with. In some cases. It's risky doing doing a plot structure because you may be dealing with artists for whom English is not a native language. Mm. Worse, they don't know English at all, and it's being translated by the agent or someone else. Um, you have to be adaptive. But again, when you're working with Alan Davis, uh, as I said, a full script is Coles to Newcastle, because Alan's storytelling is is his creativity, visual creativity, is is unparalleled. Mm-hmm. Um, you've obviously worked with a lot of amazing artists throughout the years. Um, when you're writing the X titles in particular, who is one of your one of your favorite artists to collaborate with? I mean. You've worked with a lot of good ones. Who is probably one of your personal favorites? The one I haven't worked with yet. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, how how do you differentiate between a Dave Cockrum and a Walter Simonson and a Bill Sienkiewicz and a John Bolton and a John Byrne and a John Buscema and a John Romita? I mean... They're it, all Johns. <laughs> Most of them are. Well, the problem is... you you're dealing with talent and skill at such a level of achievement. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you differentiate between Alan Davis and Frank Miller? Uh, Other than say like, they are both just incredibly cool and totally completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the the six issue uh, Matt, uh, Kitty Pride miniseries I did with one with Babilo and Salsa years mm. ago. Yeah, was an absolute delight. You know. Um, how do I differentiate them from uh, Salvador La Roca? You know, they're, they're both, they're on a level that, that is so far and away above everybody else mm-hmm. that uh, I just grin and enjoy it. Switching gears then, um, obviously you, throughout your well, your tenure working with Marvel, you worked through the tenures of several different editors-in-chief. 
Um, what would you say, in what ways were your stories affected by the direction that each EIC took the company's line of books? Well, it's clear that when you're looking at a career that spans, God help me, the better part of 50 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, in the beginning, Dave and I and John and I and Dave and I and Paul and I were making it up as we went along. There, we didn't have to worry about editors per se because we were establishing the canon. There was no canon before us. Mm-hmm. Um, the only interference, rightly or wrongly, was the death of Gene, in which, when in which Jim made the right decision. Uh, but that, in turn, set up four years later the resurrection of Gene for X Factor Number One, which. I thought was the utterly wrong decision, but not my job. Mm-hmm. Now, what you have are editors who are not only caretakers of a tradition of a of a creative arc that runs back 45 years for new Mm X-Men but are also responsible to the management structure of a multi-billion dollar corporation both Marvel and by extension Disney and to influences that didn't exist when I was doing the series we didn't have to worry about the fact that Marvel is a highly successful producer of its own movie adaptations or movie film uh, film adaptations of its work, mm-hmm. but their primary comic franchise is under the media control of a rival corporation. Fox and Marvel had no problems when Marvel was an independent corporation. The moment Marvel got became part of Disney, problems de- seemed to develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what is it? There's an article today in Business Insider to the effect that the X-Men are being back backpedaled significantly because there's no way that Marvel slash Disney can profit from the the cinematic adaptations. Mm-hmm. All that money goes to Fox. Speaking so of speaking that of metal change in terms of how the relationship between the comic and the 
the host corporation exists. And from a business standpoint, I'm sure it makes absolute sense from a creative slash creator's standpoint it's, and perhaps the reader's standpoint it's it's regrettable but mm-hmm. it's not my corporation and it's not my job in that respect I'm an employee I do as I'm I do what is asked of me <laughs> Speaking of the uh, the X Men films, what was your take on the uh, Days of Future Past adaptation? What was yours? I enjoyed the film. There you um, go. I I um, I mean, obviously, I had to had to kind of fit in the movie continuity, but uh, there were elements from your story that I thought worked well. There's some other things I would have liked to have seen, but still interesting. So, I mean, from my perspective, I consider it a fairly straight adaptation. Uh, would have been nice to get credit for John and me, but that's there you go. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it, it did enable me to re-up my membership in the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> go figure. Interesting. Um... Uh, all my salary went to is going to pay the the back the back uh, fees on that one. Um, going back to um, your ex work, uh, one question: uh, If you could uh, rewrite any storyline in particular, just one storyline, which would it be, and how would you alter it? Well, I think in the overall scheme of things, I would leave Gene dead. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, when when the decision was made to bring bring about X Factor. I went to Jim with a pitch. I mean, um, and said, "Look, it's perfectly sensible, but you're 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 running." I mean, we've just spent two years or more passionately telling everyone, "Jean's dead. She's going to stay dead." We've got all the characters dealing with it as if that were the reality. Now you're telling us it's a lie. What if we take another another track? We oh, and by the way, Scott is now dumping his wife and his newborn child for his old girlfriend. How does that make him look like a hero? Mm-hmm. Um, because the problem was that the the original concept for X Factor ignored the fact that this reality had happened to Scott. And how do you make a hero do what is a fundamentally obscene event in a, in a person's life? You walk out on your wife and kid right after the kid's born. How does Gene trust him uh, in, in that circumstance? So my pitch to Jim was we have a, we have a very feasible alternative. We have... Jean's elder sister Sarah how about her she's a redhead we've established she has mutant powers we've established she's hooked in with Jean because of a couple of uh, short stories I've done I've done 
More importantly, she's not affiliated. So we reestablish the X-Men in X-Factor. Okay, great. The original team is back together again. Scott is leading the team with his wife and son. Sarah is there. She's the, the gray, the, the unknown factor. And obviously, suddenly, Frank, sorry, suddenly Hank and Bobby and Warren are in play again. We're not recreating the original paradigm. We are making the original paradigm better. We now have the opportunity for the three other characters to step forward and say, hey, guys. One of us could romance the, you know, the new the new redhead, <laughs> or not, and let's see where that leads. Wouldn't that be a lot more fun? And Jim was generous enough to concede that yes, it was an interesting idea, and if I wanted to do Sarah on my own in the in Uncanny, he had no problem with that. It would have worked, but he'd already committed to X Factor and the paradigm that had been presented to him, and it it was a sure it would be it was a certain money winner. Hmm. It was, but um, you know, I the problem was once we resurrected Gene it made dying in the Marvel Universe a joke. Which has been proven time and time again since. Unfortunately, yeah. So, you know, that's the way it is. It's not... The creators are not the managers of the characters. And that's why things don't always go the way you want or think are right. Switching to a more positive uh, uh, outlook, what are the stories that you're most proud of? Or that you found the most fun to write? I don't know. The, you know, the ones... I, I generally tend not to look back because it's it, it makes my head hurt. <laughs> There's just too much to choose from. True. Um... The stuff I love most is probably the stuff that's mine, not Marvel's or DC's, because it's mine. Mm-hmm. And that means the stuff I love is look forward to the most is the stuff I haven't done yet. I want to see where the characters will lead me. I want to see where the characters will lead me, not where we've been. Mm-hmm. That's why going back to 91 when part of the disputation between me and and Jim when he came on was that he had all these stories, all these characters he wanted to play with that derived from the stories I'd been doing for 15 years at that point except I'd already done them twice at least I wanted to find out. I wanted to find something new. I wanted to play with unexpected characters. I wanted to take the book in new directions. Um, I think that was the 
the idea originally when I took over in 2000 for that short six-issue run on Uncanny and X-Men. The, the hope was to pick up and, and push the book in some new and unexpected directions to, to introduce some new and unexpected adversaries mm-hmm. and see how we could confound the readership and in, intrigue them and trance them all the more. The idea behind creating uh, the Australian character, you know, heroes with Salva in uh, X-Men Forever. Mm -hmm. Not forever, in Extreme. You know, it's it's easy to do what's been done, to do a variation on, well, let's do yet another adaptation of, of this series or that series or this arc or that arc or Let's look at it from another angle. Fine, but why not come up with something better? Come up with something new. Come up with something that the reader doesn't see coming and might think, whoa! I mean, I think that's, I, that is why uh, I forget her her name but the the new the new female character who is is Muslim oh the new Miss Marvel Miss Marvel Ah, there you go (laughs) is a step in that direction I mean why not try to play with the tropes and 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 blindside the readers in the best sense of the word Moving on for actually along those lines, uh, when you started writing the now unfortunately uh, ended Nightcrawler, how did that book come about? I got a call from the office and they said, uh, we're, Nightcrawler's coming back from the dead. Would you like to write it? So I said yes. Was there anything else or were you kind of giving carte blanche to kind of structure whatever kind of story you'd like to tell with Kurt? Well, not, not really carte blanche. I mean, uh, the setups were all done in other ser- in other arcs and other series, and I think astonishing. Um, so I basically picked up his life when he came back to Earth, um, and then it was it was simply a matter of well, I'm back, I'm back, I'm alive. What's next? So we, you know, the first thing he did was hook up with his old girlfriend, and uh, one thing led to another, and then suddenly, out of the blue, Logan dies, and uh, you know that uh, that sort of became the defining moment of. The mid, I mean, originally the idea was this is only going to be a five-issue series, a mini-series. Then suddenly it was 
an ongoing series, then suddenly it was a 12-issue series. So it it was not the most comfortable of structure of creative structures. It was always there was an, an unfortunate sense of stop, start, stop, start. Mm. And um, you know, I couldn't quite get into a a, a creative rhythm. And it, it's very much, for me, a sense of, of being on the outside looking in. Uh, we weren't able to develop, I wasn't able to develop a, a cast for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from Ziggy and... Uh, uh, Rico. Uh, Rico. Who I actually really liked as a character. Yeah, th- I mean they're fun. I mean the. Uh, it was just we had to bring everything to a closure. Mm-hmm. And so we, my my decision was we'll just deal with Tula Marvoge and the and the slavers once and for all, or what passes for once and for all. <laughs> and uh, that'll be that. But I gather, you know, the problem is it's in much the same way that, that a number of years back I was doing, we were doing Excalibur set in Genosha. Oh yeah, I remember that book. It was, it was Xavier and a bunch of new characters and it, it had no, no connection with Excalibur other than the name, which turned out commercially to be a mistake because all the Excalibur fans were expecting an English-based series. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the middle of it, after we'd got, after I'd gone to the trouble of setting up Charlie and Magneto. And uh, uh, you know, out in Genosha with with new characters and um, and such, House of M came along, mm-hmm. and the whole thing went away. And I think the prob- the problem for me is that in the time I remember you know back in my day the grand crossover concept was more occasional and so the series you were left alone with your series to develop arcs to develop characters to develop directions now it is a much more formally structured event and there you're very much aware of a group of creators and editors getting together for their conclave defining what will happen for the next two years or whatever and everyone else has to fit in around the periphery that's the way that, that 
um, you know, that that Axel and uh, Joe find it comfortable to run the, the shop. That's their prerogative. Mm-hmm. Uh, going way back, because I know we're running out of time. Um, whose idea was it to combine Power Man and Iron Fist? And what were your original plans for the characters? Archie's. Archie Goodwin? Yeah. He was editor-in-chief. The series, both of them as individual series weren't doing stellar work. Archie's thought was, it's likely they have totally different audiences if we combine them. Who knows? We might come up with a viable title. Um, the first reaction was, what the hell are we going to do with them? <laughs> neither neither series has what you might call great adversaries. And Archie just sort of looked at me like he was talking to an idiot, which he probably was, and said, look at your cast. You've got Luke Cage, Danny Rand, Misty Knight, Colleen Wing. If you can't get 12, at least 12 issues worth of stories just out of the four of them coming in in the morning and saying, what's for breakfast? You don't deserve to call yourself a writer. And he was right. I mean, I handled it for a couple of issues that I think Joe Duffy took over for a, a, a good chunk of time, and it worked brilliantly. Uh, what, what did you find most compelling about writing for the Fantastic Four in the 90s? Chance to play with Stan and Jack's toys in and see if I could I could take things to that high a level and sustain it and for Salva and me to have a whole lot of fun what were the challenges and rewards in writing such a well-established team book with a history of classic runs at that point? Well, the challenge was, can I do better than Galactus or try? Um, what's it like? Uh, the most fun for me was the sense I was really happy that the Baxter building was sort of run over by a bus because I like the idea of them being the fish out of water of having their the FF dock next to uh, Stuyvesant High School on the west side of Manhattan lower west side so Reed could teach as well as be as, as, as well as save the universe how could we you know, how could I play with Sue's old romance with Namor or potential romance with Namor? How could we throw a big, big-ass monkey into the mess with the introduction of Valeria? And the fun part was, what if, I mean, my what I was looking forward to was what if Reed found himself trapped in in the armor, in Doom's armor, and he liked it? <laughs> the armor began to take him over. What if suddenly 
the hero of the of the Fantastic Four became the the overlord of Latveria and worse. And how do you get him back from that brink? You know, that was that was I would have loved to have strung that out for a good long while. Mm-hmm. It was definitely but, a cool concept to see executed and, and the art was fantastic at that point too. Well, and, and it would have given me a chance to play with Doom without the armor. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge in comics has always been how do you make Iron Man as credible a hero as Spider-Man? Because Spidey is just a kid wearing a spandex suit. Iron Man is the armor. Anybody can wear the armor. How do you make, you know, how do you make Tony Stark special or different from Rhodey? How do you make either of them special or different from whoever else can put on the suit? Um, that's always that was always Stan's big frustration and and challenge how do you how do you make someone like iron man credible when there's no one really to bond with for the reader to bond with you know it's it's uh we don't have the advantage i guess in a comic of of making the the helmet transparent so you can see the man inside the helmet and relate to him the way you relate to Morton John uh, to Robert to Downey Jr. in in Iron Man. So, um, a question: um, What were your favorite X Men characters to write, or that you identified the most with? Pick one. Let's do the first. Favorite X-Men character to write? Just any of them? Okay. Pick a name. I'll, I'll agree with you. <laughs> um, all right. Um, it's been too long and there are too many characters, and I don't play favorites with them anymore. They're all equally fascinating, equally fun, equally dynamic. All right. A, a similar type of question, though. Um, you created a lot of really well-written female characters over the years. Um, instead of picking a favorite, which one do you think may have would have gotten more attention or a title? Uh, Kitty would have been fun. Aurora would have been fun. Rogue would have been fun. Uh... Betsy would have been fun. You know, it's, again, it's, it, it's finding the right, the right artist, the right character, the right adversary, the right arc of stories. You know, it's, You play with it till you find a mix that, that works. Uh, a question about Betsy, um, and this was probably the most popular question that people had, was what was behind the decision to change her ethnicity? Or where did that concept come well, from? Jim, Jim did it in a, a mini arc that we did in Uncanny, 
and it just looked so cool. I thought we, we should do this for a while. I mean, we can always put her back. Would you have put her back? Was that always part of your intention? Well, it was certainly on the table. The problem was, A, she proved to be tremendously successful as as Asian Betsy. And B, I got fired. Hmm. So whatever plans I had went up in smoke. Uh, you know, in another reality, perhaps. Um, it's just, that's the rule of unanticipate, unanticipated consequences. Hmm. Do you read any current comics still? Not that much. No? Anything in particular? No. No. I mean, it's, it, I'm not the audience. And it's I prefer you know I'm more interested in in trying to figure out the stories that I want to tell and pitch them and sell them than see what other people are doing and again with with DC with Marvel there is it's a much more structured and formalized environment and um, not as chaotic, not as as form, from my perspective anyway, as flexible or enticing as it used to be. Hmm. But, you know, for all I know, that that's the natural way of things. It's It's not... It's not even relevant at this point. Um, second last question here. Um, what was it like to be given the opportunity to write the X-Men Forever stories? And how did that even come about? It was kind of a cool concept, being able to kind of go back as if you never left and kind of write stories based on those characters as if nothing had changed. Well, it was cool. It was fun. I mean, just... It was a chance to work with with an excellent artist with you know to 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 try and blindside people to do things that the again nobody saw coming um was it more creatively freeing because you weren't part of the overarching framework anymore you could kind of do your own thing that's a double-edged sword because when you're in an environment where everything is in is everything is stitched together in terms of continuity to build up to and out of miniseries A, miniseries B, miniseries C. Um, to have a standalone series of any kind is, is frustrating because there's what we do is, is totally standalone. You know, whereas a lot of people like to buy Marvel for the joy of entering a universe where all the pieces fit together. What happens in X-Men affects Iron Man. What happens in Iron Man affects 
the Avengers, obviously, um, or the Defenders. So it was a it was a mixed blessing. Um, on the other hand, it was kind of fun to gratuitously kill off people without <laughs> without warning. I mean, starting with Logan, and you know, moving on to Hank and Tony. Um, and you know, turning Aurora into a villain, and then revealing that it it was a different Aurora than what we've been used to. Um, again, it was playing around. It was it was. I'd like to think having fun and spinning off of what I some of the stuff that I'd originally intended. Um. I kind of like the idea of Kitty with a claw. I mean, she's a cat. She should have a claw. <laughs> um, things like that. It, the frustration, again, sadly, was that uh, the, the numbers were just insufficient to sustain the title. I mean, it, that's the most... I think the most frustrating reality for me is that looking back at X-Men 1, the ambition was to take that 8 million copy sale record and use it as as a foundation to try and build a lasting, sustainable increase in the in the issue to issue sales, so that you could come back in ninety two and ninety three and see the X titles, certainly, but perhaps other com- other titles as well, achieving. Sales in the mid to upper six figures, possibly seven figures, and that that we could suddenly find ourselves back with the sales impact we had in comics had in the fifties and early sixties, and it was, and it would have been interesting to see if if we'd achieved that on the basis of of excited readers picking up the issues because they like the characters, they like the stories, they like the writing, they love the art, would there have been a crash? Or would the crash of, bit of 93 have been as impactful as it turned out to be? That's the alternate universe version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the sad thing is that instead of taking that as as a foundation to build to a higher level, it was the edge of a cliff, and everyone and it, we all went rocketing off, sadly. And it seems that everything is recovering or starting to recover now 
um, fingers crossed it'll, it, it will sustain and move on. But the challenge is that, that things are so much more expensive now. Hmm. For sure. I guess final question. Were there any characters or properties that you never got a chance to write yet that you wish you could have or would like to still work on? Well, lots of stuff I'd like to still work on, but the fact is that that realistically speaking, my sense of working on things versus the employers, the corporations' sense of working on things are are somewhat different and to an extent dichotomous. Um, like it or not, I come from what some might consider a more self-indulgent or, or company-indulgent era where Stan's perspective was I'm the boss, you're the employee, three things are required from you. Hit your deadlines, sell the book, and tell good stories. If worse comes to worse, I'll sell for two out of three. Do that. I'm not going to bother you because I got, I'm boss. I got more important things to worry about than looking over your shoulder and telling you how to do your business. If I have to look over your shoulder and tell you how to write, I'll tell you how to write, I'm not going to employ you anymore because you're not worth the effort. Um, that was Stan's basic rule. And yes, the stories tended, could then become a tad more chaotic than they are now, but you also ended up with some really brilliantly memorable creations. And I think in striking, in evolving ahead from that, we have gotten to a situation now where it is a much more editorially centric environment, if for no other reason than then the editors all know each other. They're all familiar with each other's work. They're all familiar with the realities of the industry and the necessities of the company. And the freelancers, the, the creative staff are people who wander in and wander out. Um, so it's, it, it's led to a different approach to the generation of stories and the evolution of ideas. Um, many writers find that a very comfortable reality to work in. More power to them. Um, I guess I'm from an older age. Um, so... I guess I'll have to hold back and keep my fingers crossed in hopes that we find ourselves a more Netflix-oriented uh, publishing environment hmm. where you have 
scads of possibilities out there in terms of people who can provide the means of producing, of getting a writer and an artist down and, and committed and get their books out to the, the, the general populace in a means that will provide sufficient return on the investment for all the parties concerned. Hope springs eternal, you know. Um, but at the moment, you know, Marvel has their way of doing things. DC has their way of doing things. As professionals, you work and you work within those paradigms because that that's that's the deal. Now, what what uh, what can we hope to expect from you next? Um. Well, let's see. If hopefully Fox will get into production on uh, Gambit with Channing Tatum, fairly in fairly short order, since it's a it's my I created the character. B it's my concept uh, story concept. I might even get a credit this time. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, we'll see. You know, um, but my focus is a tad more outside comics than inside, simply because, um, well, you know, uh, I have to see what the for example, what the cons- what the af- the consequences of Mike Martz's decision to uh, step down as editor, executive editor of the of the X Men line, means for that side of Marvel, since that seems to be where I'm. I spend most of my time these days. Mm-hmm. But that's you know that's. That's down the line a bit. We'll wait and see. Fair enough. Well, uh, thanks again, Chris, for uh, spending uh, over an hour with us today. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners do too. So uh, thanks again. More than welcome.